Hey, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. I'm Josh. I'm one of Bridgewater's pastors, and I'm just really grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with us this weekend. You find us in our second week of our series entitled The Tale of Three Kings. The series is based loosely on a book by Gene Edwards of the same title. Now, let me ask you, you ever been in a situation where you were building something, like assembling something you purchased or or ordered, and uh, you get it all done, but you got some spare parts? Maybe just one. Um, you, you know what to do in that moment, right? You just call it good, right? Yeah, you throw it away. <laughs> Must not have needed it. When Kristen and I were newly married, uh, we were given a refrigerator to help get us started. We moved into this house we were renting, and we put the refrigerator in the one spot we thought it should go. Only problem was it opened right at the wall. Okay, so not a big deal. You just take the handle and move it to the other side take the hinge, right, switch it to the other side of the door. You can do that. You can do that. (laughs) Uh, I tried it, uh, got it off, put it back on, and I had one little shiny little metal piece and thought, I don't remember that coming out of there. And uh, opened up the door, boom, the whole thing fell right off. And there it was in all of its glory. And uh, I I didn't used to be good at those things, and some might say I'm still not good at those things, but uh, I think we all know what it's like to have something that's really, really small that doesn't seem significant actually prove in the end to be extremely significant. Something that we thought wasn't a big deal, just a tiny little thing, easy to overlook. Uh, Sometimes those little things are deceptively important, and when they're involving something we're putting together like a refrigerator or a desk, you can kind of deal with it. When it's an area of character in our lives, it's a little bit more damaging. In some cases, it's actually catastrophic. And in this series, we're talking about character. We're looking at three men, three men who were known by their character, three men who, by the outside world's opinion, had everything that they needed to succeed, to be all that they should have been, to do all that they were supposed to do, and two of them didn't make it, one did. Because as we're going to see through this series, There are little things that, if we're not careful, actually become really, really big and instrumental, important things, issues of character in the inner man that cause the demise of two of these men we're looking at and the rise, the unexpected rise of another. And so what we hope this series does for us as a church, if you're joining us here or online or any of our Bridgewater campuses, is help us to take stock of our own lives and the character of our own lives so that we are not overlooking something that might actually be really easy to overlook, but it's going to come back to haunt us in a really significant way. So we're looking at some key character qualities and deficiencies that showed up in the lives of these men, these kings, that I think also at times rear their ugly head or their uh, secretive, uh, deceptive head in our lives and either propel us to be all that God has called us to be or short-circuit the work of God in our lives. So we're looking at three kings, specifically of the ancient nation of Israel. Israel, God's chosen people, this group of people, nothing special about them. God chose them to represent him to the world. God was going to bless the world through these people, specifically beginning with the first man, Abraham. From him arose a nation, and God used this nation to show people what he is like through their laws, through their practices, through their proclamations, uh, they were going to show the world what God was like. 
and God himself would rule as their king. But along the way, sometime in their past, they decided they didn't want God as their king. They didn't want some invisible ruler. They wanted a king that they could see. And so God does what um, I'm afraid what would happen if he did this often in my life, and he gave them exactly what they were asking for. He gave them exactly what they wanted. And he gave them a king, and that king's name was Saul. So we looked at Saul last week. Bob talked to us about Saul and, and his rise and, uh, and his struggles. God made his calling on the life of Saul evident. Saul was blessed. He was gifted. He stood head and shoulders above all the people of Israel. Uh, but Saul either led out of extreme self-confidence or extreme insecurity. Neither one is a healthy place to lead from. He was not a spokesman, an extension of God like he should have been, uh, but he was crippled by the fear and the opinions of people. He was ruled by what others thought, and he was unwilling to take responsibility for his own choices, let alone the direction of an entire nation. So this week, as we continue to look at Saul and another part of his character that destroyed his influence and diminished his reign in the kingdom and what God could have done, we're going to look specifically at jealousy and how jealousy robs us of everything that we actually want. So we're really going to be talking about one thing today, and that is jealousy. A few weeks ago in our Money and Happiness series, we talked about envy of finances, possessions, things like that. I'm here to tell you jealousy is a little bit deeper than that. Jealousy for sure is envious of what others have, and it's envious of what others are able to do. But we're going to sort of unpack jealousy bit by bit throughout this message today. So we left off the story last week with Saul failing to obey God. God gave him explicit commands. Saul just decided not to wait for God's commands, but to do his very own thing because he cared about his credibility with the people. And in his great concern for his credibility, he actually lost it. So in the first half of 1 Samuel 16, and we're going to be in 1 Samuel 16, 17, and 18. So we are going to uh, hover over at a bird's eye view three chapters in 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, really zeroing in on this nation of Israel. We're going to cover the first part of the chapter and David's story at length in the next two weeks. So if you're familiar with Scripture and you know that David appears about this time, just hold your horses. Uh, we'll talk about him a little bit today, but really at length in the next couple of weeks. If you're new to the Bible, as we all once were, I hope today is really interesting to you and part of this just connects with where you're at today. But we're going to mention um, that here because this is the order of the text. David does begin to appear here. And even though God identified David as the next king to replace Saul, um, Saul is still the king of Israel, and things are not going well. So we're going to pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. So if you have a device, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, as a failsafe, we've got it on the screen next to and behind me. Uh, here's 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 14, reading to verse 23. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord had tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. A lyre is a small harp-like stringed instrument. Um, he will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior, 
He speaks well, and it's a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent him with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God, the, the tormenting spirit, uh, came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Sounds like kind of a basic problem. We got a, a king who's struggling and needs a little bit of help, and so he gets some help, and this young kid who plays the lyre comes on and helps him. And there we have it, um, except that's not what happens. After Saul had disobeyed God, God started undoing his reign slowly. But before the reign of Saul came undone, Saul himself began to come undone. The Spirit of God had uh, come on Saul to help him reign and rule God's people. God removed that spirit. And the idea of this evil or tormenting spirit from God is kind of a debated issue. But let's just suffice it to say that the worst of Saul came out. Whether this was God's divine punishment um, on Saul using one of his, one of his means, um, or, or whether he just let Saul experience the worst of who he was in his heart. We're not sure. All we know is that this came from God and it was tormenting Saul and he needed some help. Um, and so we see what happens here. And this is just a small point of application. Saul's struggling and his advisors, his best advisors, did something that I think that we often ask people to do. Help me medicate. Help me medicate. Things are not good between God and me. I need you to help me medicate this. Instead of, like his advisor said, let's find someone to play some music and calm you down. No one among Saul's advisors apparently said, why don't you just repent? Why don't you repent and beg God to restore you and you can be in a right relationship with God? Who said that? Apparently no one. They just decided, hey, let's get some medicine. We can take care of the symptoms of this problem. Uh, we need to get better friends than that. If our friends are just helping us medicate, we need to look harder for better friends. So along comes David, the author of many of the Psalms that we find in our Bibles today. And he plays his lyre. He sang such wonderful songs that it, they really endeared him to Saul. Saul made him one of his armor bearers, brought him even closer to him. And Saul had no idea that this young man who had already been anointed as the next king would one day be his replacement. What was known to David at this point was unknown to Saul. So some time passed, the Philistine army, a, a foreign neighboring nation, came and marched against the Israelites. And in their history, the Philistines and Israelites fought often. And so it brings us into the beginning of chapter 17. And actually, we're going to skip right over that today because it's coming in the next couple of weeks. But it's the story that uh, even people who don't know the Bible know these two names, David and... Let's try that one more time. I have more confidence in you than that. Online, you can say it right out loud. David and... Yeah, it's, this is where we get our classic story of the one who's sure to win and the one who doesn't stand a chance. We know what happens, right? Everyone in the Israelite, Israelite army is too afraid to fight this towering giant. David comes along. He's not with the army at this time. He's back home. His dad sends him to the army. He hears this guy spouting off blasphemies against the one true God, looks around and wonders how come, uh, wonders how come no one's as ticked off as he is. Like, are you listening to this guy? So David approaches Saul, says, I'm going to go fight that guy. Saul looks at this young kid and says, okay. 
sends this little guy on a suicide mission, and we kind of know what happens, right? One smooth stone to the forehead, and the giant falls to the ground. So let's pick up the story in chapter 17, verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son, son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from filling the, uh, killing the Philistine, uh, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with him. This is Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan, the heir to the throne. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Saul at this point is either too crazy to remember David or in the time that David was back home until now, David grew up. And Saul didn't recognize him. So Saul is effectively sending a boy he's not sure he even knows on this crazy mission to kill this giant because he himself is too crippled with fear to even move on it. David begins to fly through the ranks of Saul's army uh, because God was with him. Everybody loved David. The problem was that everyone started li liking David a little bit too much. Yeah. So 18 verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. And this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get? but the kingdom. There's such irony right here because while songs from David calmed the soul of Saul, songs about David agitated him. So this is what's happening now. Saul's furious because the king returning from battle, the king gets the credit, the king gets the praise, but David in this case is getting it and that's not okay. And he makes a really, a really telling statement in verse 8. What more can he get but the kingdom? Saul is so insecure at this point that this young shepherd boy is a threat to the king of the nation of God. That is just crazy. And remember still, Saul doesn't even know that David's actually going to be the next king of Israel. So he's just so jealous, and that jealousy skewed his perspective, and it brings us to the first big truth we need to wrestle with today, and that's this. Jealousy blinds us to what we already have. Jealousy blinds us to what we already have. Saul was the king, not David. When Israel won, Saul won. When things went well for Israel, they went well for Saul. He already had it. He had the crown. He had the throne. He had the authority, not David. Saul's jealousy blinded him to what he already had. And not only does jealousy make us hyper-focused on what we don't have, it negates or minimizes what we do have. Let me illustrate this this way. Let me show you two really good friends. These two ones right here, uh, I don't know if you might recognize them. This one is playing the guitar this morning, singing. This is my oldest, Cole. This is my oldest daughter, Maggie. Here they are. This is how they were, best of friends growing up, only 16 months apart. 
really just loved each other, had a great time together, um, until one particular moment, and it involved ice cream. You, know, you see, when Maggie was very young, she um, was born with a dairy allergy, so ice cream was one of those things uh, that she couldn't have. She's outgrown that somehow, um, but we went to get some ice cream, and we ordered up for Cole, and Cole gets something that looks a lot like this, and Maggie can't have it, remember, but we are still there, so we just fill her cone with sprinkles. Right, it's super cute. Just, just pour back the sprinkles. And so we're sitting there eating our ice cream, and Cole's licking his ice cream cone, looking over at Maggie, who's just doesn't have ice cream, but pouring in the sprinkles. And he starts to get irritated and agitated. And he starts to get real upset. I don't want, I want what she has. He, he got so upset, he wanted to ditch his ice cream, and he wanted one of those. Why? Because that was what he didn't have. Not because he didn't have something good, but because he simply didn't have that. And at that moment, his perspective was skewed. And he thought, I should have that. I should have that. You see, jealousy is the breeding ground of discontentment in our hearts. Jealousy is the breeding ground. We become discontent when we begin to look outside at what others have that we don't. It's looking over and seeing the position or the praise or the prosperity that someone else has and believing, I deserve that too. Perhaps you think you even deserve it more than they do. And this discontentment is fueled by comparison. And I'm not just talking financially here, though that's certainly in play. Deeper things over the friendships that you think others must have that you think you deserve. Jealousy over the recognition that someone else got that should have been coming your way. Jealousy, and you know what I'm talking about here, when someone else gets pointed at and looked at and praised for the very thing you poured your heart and soul into. That was your baby. That was your thing. That was your project. It was your idea. And now they've got it. The problem with jealousy is that it lacks all gratitude. Jealousy lives in an entitled world. It just hangs out right there in that everything good should be coming my way. And that God and others owe us this something that's more than we're currently getting. The jealous heart says, I'm owed that. I'm owed that. You can't just look at someone else's car and say, wow, that's really cool. You have to say to yourself, why shouldn't I have one of those? Why shouldn't I be able to do that? Here's what Andy Stanley says in his book, Enemies of the Heart. When we think about jealousy or envy, we think immediately about the things we lack. Looks, skills, opportunities, health, height, inheritance, and we could go on. We assume our problem is with the person who possesses what we lack, but let's face it, God could have fixed all that for us. Whatever he gave to your neighbor, he could have given to you. And that's why you may feel inside that God owes you. One of our pastors on staff reached out to some men and some women and ask them, what are some common things that you think men are jealous about? Here's a list of some things that men are commonly jealous about. Uh, they see other men with friends who have a social life. They see other men that people seem to respect. When another guy is athletic or at least skilled in some way, women like to be around these guys. Maybe their wife respects and admires them. Maybe they have a job they love. They drive the car or the truck that I actually want. Maybe their hobbies are cool and they can travel. Maybe they're just physically capable. I think guys are often jealous of other guys who are confident. They just exude confidence. And we're jealous when guys either have more leisure time or are more driven or at least have some seemingly meaningful work to do. And they're jealous when other guys' kids love and respect them. 
and we could go on and on and on. This is just a summary. We asked the same question of some women, and here's some of the answers we got. Um, maybe they have a job they love. The stage of life, like the other stage that I'm not in, is always the easier one. Maybe it's their appearance or the opportunities they have, the vacations they can take, or the oppor opportunities in their school district for what's available for their family or their kids. Maybe they feel like they're the forgotten stay-at-home mom. I think some women, they said, are jealous that other women are more creative than they are. You know, when it comes to decorating or like on Instagram or even with recipes, things like that. Hobbies. They're jealous when things come easy to other women, or at least it seems that way. These women always have a husband who gets the job that he wants. Women who are able to stay healthy. Women whose relationships just seem to come easy. They make friends easy. They seem to go out all the time. Where does the money come from to do that? I don't know. I don't have it. Personality. They're outgoing. They're easygoing. Or they don't get worked up by little things. They're likable. Maybe it's their marriage or their family relationships. In Saul's case, he felt the people owed him something. He was sent by God to lead, to serve, to protect, and provide for the people. And instead, he just thought, these people owe me. I am the king after all. And someone else is now getting the stuff that's supposed to be coming my way. He wasn't leading the people at this point. He was just using the people. He had an itch that needed scratched, and they were the branch to scratch the itch. That's it. You see, jealousy also cannot celebrate when others win. Isn't, isn't it a win for the king when, when one of his soldiers has a major victory? Isn't it? The coach, when the quarterback throws a touchdown pass. The offensive line, when the running back gets through. It's football season, sorry. The jealous heart also cannot celebrate what others have gained, only what they themselves lack. I can't be happy for you when things work out well for you. All I can do is fixate on what I don't have. Every time you get means there's something that I don't have. That's what the jealous heart does. And the sad part is, if you sit on jealousy long enough, it's going to begin to erode your relationships. It counteracts against you. Look at chapter 18, verse 9. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit came from God forcefully on Saul, who was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Saul now is not just jealous. He's got an edge toward David, so much so. He's got a spear. In, like, what kind of king sits in his castle, his palace, with his armor and his weapons. That's called paranoia, right? And he throws a spear at David twice, which means David somehow hung around long enough or came back for Saul to have a second opportunity. What a man. What a man this young boy was. How did David come back? I don't know. But we really need to see what happened here because it's so important for us this morning. David was serving Saul, risking life and limb, doing all of the things publicly and out front with the army that Saul should have been doing. David's entire life was literally dedicated to serving Saul. And at this point, Saul was so insecure that he turned one of his greatest allies into an enemy. And that's the second big truth we've got to wrestle with this morning. Jealousy turns allies into enemies. 
This is a really, really sad part of this account. Saul's jealousy over David led him to be so threatened by him that he was willing to kill him. Saul couldn't even see at this point that David was not against him. He was for him. David was, exi- was uh, advancing Saul's cause. And we, left to our own devices, have ways of seeing enemies where there are none. We see competition where there shouldn't be. We see rivals where there aren't any. We feel threatened by the teammate who keeps creeping into the spot we want. Tension with our siblings because we see them sneaking in for affection or attention from our parents or our, you know, our siblings' kids who sneak in to grandma and grandpa to get that love and affection that we think should be coming to our kids. We're all capable of allowing jealousy to create competitions to be better than someone else. Problem is, you're the only one with a scorecard. You're the only one keeping track. No one else cares. But you are locked into this jealous world. Here's what Proverbs 14, 30 says about it. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like cancer in the bones. Jealousy would lead us not to see family, not to see people, not to see friends and coworkers as people in need of Jesus to whom we can serve but enemies who are out to take things from us. They stand in the way of what we think we deserve. So naturally then, we see people as either vehicles who get us where we want to go or obstacles who are just in our way. Either way, we have removed the image of God from people and they are just now simply objects or servants. And what this does is leads to relational isolation. We wonder why we don't have friends. We wonder why we're not really connecting with people. We struggle to see others succeed up close. So then our natural response is to then distance ourselves. Saul has been pulling David in close, close, close. Now he pushes him away. Look at chapter 18, verse 13. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. Everything, in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So this strategy didn't work because God kept blessing David. As we read over and over again, the Lord was with him. So he said, okay, that didn't work. So now he employs the strategy of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Look what he does next. Chapter 18, verse 27. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So at this point, David has the affection of Saul's people, Saul's army, Saul's son, and now Saul's daughter. His jealousy literally robbed him of everything he held dear. He tried to hold it so close that he lost it all. You could almost say that the more he tried to hold on, the more jealous he became, the more he actually lost. Another Old Testament book, Job, puts it this way in Job 5.2. says, Surely resentment destroys the fool, and jealousy kills the simple. This is all a pretty dark and grim picture. But I think if we're honest here this morning, We all have the potential to allow jealousy to creep into our hearts and to take up space that really it should not occupy and begin to influence not only our attitudes toward people but our actions as well. And it's so small that it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's a little piece 
we can overlook. I mean, after all, who of us are afraid among a group of friends to admit that they're jealous of someone about something? It's not like a very important card to play. It's commonplace. It's kind of socially acceptable to be jealous because everyone has nicer stuff than I do. Why wouldn't I be jealous? So what do we do with that? It's so deceptively important. What's the solution? Our solution, as always, is to look to Jesus. Is to look to Jesus. Not only was Jesus our example of refusing jealousy, but then also commanding us and empowering us to live lives free from it. I want us to look together at Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's hard to be jealous when you consider other people more important than yourself. It's hard to be jealous when you're looking out for the best interest of others. But this will only happen for us when we filter our relationships with people through the gospel, through Jesus' life, through Jesus' death and resurrection for us. When we consider what Jesus did for us, he didn't grasp at position that was actually his, power that he could have wielded, prosperity that he could have commanded or privilege to his own gain, but rather he gave them up so that you and I could find life. That's what he did this morning. He did that for us. The gospel demands we celebrate when others win. The gospel demands we help others win. The gospel demands we walk in gratitude because the only thing we deserved was death. And Jesus took death and gave us life. The stark contrast between Saul and Jesus in these verses, in these two passages, is staggering. The temporary king Saul was self-seeking, used power for personal gain, sent a young man on a suicide mission to protect himself. The real king, Jesus, made himself nothing, gave up, up, gave up his seat in heaven to be human like us, and ultimately went on his own suicide mission in Jerusalem to defeat the real giant in our lives, not named Goliath, but sin. And I'm here to tell you this morning, Jealousy can be your undoing. It is so small, it's easy to overlook, but it can bring you down. I'm urging you, all of us this morning, don't let it. The question is, okay, how? How do I not let it win? Let me just give you a word. I think it's very appropriate this time of year. Thankfulness. Thankfulness. No surprise that our kids' ministry is uh, doing thankful jars. If you don't know about that, if you don't have your kids checked into kids' ministry, you're missing out because they're getting uh, little kits to make little jars where every day you write something you're thankful for, fill the jar, fill the jar, fill the jar, all the way to Thanksgiving. So we have graduated up a little bit out of that, so here's what we're going to do. All right, let me just help you. Uh, we've got in the back, there's a table as you walk out. It's got some cards on it, some greeting cards and some thank you cards. Grab one, grab two, grab a small handful and begin writing some thank you notes. Begin writing some cards to people. You don't have to be jealous of them to write them a card. 
that the very act, the very choice of being thankful will begin to loosen jealousy's grip in our hearts. And maybe there's a few people who are coming to mind that you just need to write to thank. Another suggestion would be send a, a note or a text to someone else just, just to encourage them. This one's easy. The device is already in your pocket or in your purse. Just send a text to encourage someone every day between now and Thanksgiving. Or third, maybe write out a prayer of thanks to God each day for what he's done from now until Thanksgiving. If we would make the choice to be thankful, jealousy will not stand a chance because we are following the example of Jesus and acting in the power that he provides. That's what we can do. That's how we can overcome jealousy. So the question I want to leave us with today is, who are you more like? Is your heart, is your character more aligned with Saul's? Or is it more aligned with Jesus? Would you pray with me? God, we, um, we struggle. I struggle. I can quickly list out the things that I know I don't have, but I really want. I actually know who the people are who have the things that I want. Jealousy comes all too naturally for me, and I'm afraid it probably does for my friends here in the room and online. Would you help us not only to notice when it's there, small as it may be, but would you also then help us in the face of jealousy to choose to be thankful? I pray that we would not only follow Jesus' example, but we would live in his power and make choices that honor him, not only because we should, but because we can. We're asking this for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.